My goal is to simply draw attention to producers. More than anything else, I, I want people to know, like, these foods come from somewhere. These drinks come from somewhere. And I write in the coffee chapter how, you know, I had so little consciousness when I was reaching for that coffee. And then, you know, it was only when I was in Ethiopia I really understood how my, how their dreams, the dreams of these farmers were bound up in my own. That was Simran Sekhti. Simran is a lot of things. She's a journalist, an academic, an activist, a celebrity environmentalist, and most recently an author of a book called Bread, Wine, Chocolate, The Slow Loss of Foods We Love. This is Michael Sheridan. I'm Director of Sourcing and Sustainability at Intelligentsia Coffee, and you're listening to the Intelli Sourcing Sessions, conversations about coffee's origins to serve our mission, illuminating coffee. We talked with Simran today about a book called Bread, Wine, Chocolate because there are two other foods featured in her book that don't make the title, and one of them is coffee. Simran is a lot of things. Uh, mostly she's awesome and passionate about coffee and environmental sustainability. And her book is an intimate look at the sources of our food and a celebration of the people who make them delicious, but it's also a warning that the genetic base on which the foods we love is narrowing to the point where it's becoming dangerous. Here's our conversation with Simran about bread, wine, chocolate, and coffee. So, Simran, the book is titled Bread, Wine, Chocolate, The Slow Loss of Foods We Love. Why didn't coffee make the title? Oh, Michael, I wanted coffee in the title. (laughs) Bread, wine, chocolate, the slow loss of foods we love was the working title I came up with. And then I came up with 40 additional titles. <laughs> and um, at that point, my editor had already fallen in love with, with the working title and had, had, like, had mock-ups done of the book cover. And I really, I mean, you know, I wanted coffee and beer. Those are the two that are, that are kind of missing from that. I wanted them all there. But when he showed me one of the mock-ups of the cover, it's, it's basically what, what the cover became. And it has a wine stain and some sprinkles of chocolate and crumbs of bread and the edge of a baguette. And and I saw then how we could achieve kind of a different narrative through the cover if we, if we kept it at three. And, um, and as much as I, I wanted to include coffee because it is actually the chapter I'm most um, connected to emotionally and, and was the most transformative journey for me. It just ultimately didn't, didn't make the cut. Well, um, I'll take you at your word. I, I believe that you don't say that to all the girls. Coffee is really my favorite. <laughs> or all the foods. No. Yes. <laughs> Beer is still not my favorite. Um, bread is the, is, the, is the chapter most people really love the most. Chocolate is the substance I uh, probably think about the most now with my own podcast, but coffee Coffee was my chapter. I mean, it set the tone for me for the journey. Uh, going to Addis Ababa, um, I'd already spent time in Australia. So that portion of the book, that journey, um, spending time doing, uh, like, tasting at Seven Seeds in Melbourne um, and spending, you know, a lot of time on the phone with people like Peter Giuliano, those things had already happened. But, but the real nitty-gritty work of traveling to Ethiopia you know, and trying to make sense of the center of origin and, and going to the, you know, the Kafa Biosphere Reserve and, 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 and understanding what wild coffee meant and what it really meant to preserve diversity. That journey was like no other. Um, meeting those farmers in, you know, who are part of the Yerga Chefe Cooperative, um, it, it changed who I am. Like it's, and it, it's something that has stayed with me still. Um, so, yeah, I don't say that to all the other foods and drinks. <laughs> yeah, the coffee is very special, that's for sure. Um, this is a book, uh, as you said, uh, about the future of five delicious foods. <clears throat> and your uh, your research, and you can't see me now because we're talking by phone, but I'm making air quotes. Your research um, consisted of eating bread and chocolate, uh, drinking coffee and wine and beer, talking to brilliant, passionate people like Peter Giuliano, who are committed to the conservation of these foods and to the best expression of each of them. So um, would I be wrong to think that researching the book was like just an incredible amount of fun and tastiness? <laughs> you would not be wrong, Michael. I mean, I will say it, uh, my learning curve around coffee was pretty steep because 
I'm, uh, I'm five feet tall and I weigh 95 pounds and I would enter into a cupping and I would be so hyper caffeinated, even spitting it out. Like by the time we were halfway through, <laughs> um, in those early days of cupping, I, uh, I would turn to, um, Aaron Woods, who was then the, the head roaster at, at Seven Season in Melbourne, Australia, where I did most of that, that research in air quotes, um, but true quotes also. And, uh, you know, he could see that moment when I was just sort of glazing over, you know, and I wasn't able to pick up any of the nuances anymore. So, so I ended up, um, yeah, really enjoying all of that research and still continuing it to this day. And I think what's really served me is, like by actually identifying it as research, it became this other thing. You know, I mean, it it went from being just what I would consume in the morning, you know, as the anchor of my day, as the as the start of my day, to something I I looked at more critically or dispassionately to kind of under try to understand. Yeah, and I I really um, when I read the book, I get that. I mean, when I I think of the book. Um, as two things, I think of it partly as a love letter to the food that you that you can't live without, and to the places that produce them, and the people who are um, devoted to conserving and celebrating them. And I also think about it as um, you know, putting on your environment environment reporter hat. It's an urgent warning to everybody else um, about the consequences of how quickly the genetic base of our foods are narrowing. Um, is that a fair way in your mind to think about the book? Absolutely. I, um, I so appreciate your assessment because you, you hit upon the things I was really trying to convey. What I learned in my career as an environmental journalist was um, that we were doing it wrong. And when I say we, I, I'm putting a lot of amazing people in that tent. I was the environmental correspondent for NBC News, and you know, there was this, this peak of conversation around environmental issues and inconvenient truth had come out. Um, Vanity Fair was putting out green issues of which I was honored to be a part. You know, I was, I was on the Oprah Winfrey show on Earth Days a couple in a row talking about how to go green and the needle wasn't moving. You know, it was as if we were having these conversations in a void. Um, we, recycling rates weren't increasing. What we saw was after that peak around, uh, you know, climate change engagement, that skepticism actually started to rise because the way we presented it was as if climate skeptics were on par with, you know, with renowned scientists. And so some of that stuff got really lopsided. And I remember I was on the third, with my third round on the Oprah Winfrey show, and we were talking about some of the same subjects I covered in Visit One. And I had this epiphany in the middle of telling her, I mean, I remember so clearly standing on that stage beside her with a jug of lemon water in my hands, talking about home cleaning products, thinking like my internal narrative was, what have I done wrong? And at that point, I started to like transform my research. I had this pre-existing book contract, which ultimately became the book that you now know. Um, but at that point, I was I was looking at a different kind of trajectory, and it was like, how do we increase engagement. You know, what are the barriers to environmental engagement? Because I could see the needle was getting stuck. And what I learned was, you know, speaking about these issues in a dispassionate way was part of the challenge. And so we needed to make things intimate. And for me, when I started to write this book, you know, I, I initially I went to Rome. Uh, that was the first place I was based for my research. I was spending a lot of time at the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, where a lot of this material has been abstracted. So we, we call seeds, you know, plant genetic resources for food and agriculture, PGRFA, or, you know, coffee genetic resources. It's like to most people, this is just a, a cappuccino, you know, or a latte. Like when we, when we abstract it out, it becomes difficult for, for us to kind of understand. So, um, so initially the book was something like wheat, rice, corn, you know, and those have really strong cultural affiliations for many cultures, including my own. I'm of Indian origin, but it wasn't like what got me out of bed. You know, it wasn't what transformed my day or 
mended my broken heart or woke me up in the afternoon. And, and so what ultimately happened was I started to look at those anchors. They maybe weren't nutritional anchors, but they were, for me, life anchors. And, and it is that love letter part that you talk about. It's I can't ask people to say something if they don't understand what's at stake. And I believe the way to help people understand what is at stake is to remind them of what an important role these foods and drinks play in our life. Um, so I chose ones that we celebrate with, that we mourn through, that, you know, with coffee, what wakes us up, or at least wakes me up, you know. I mean, I I remember so clearly, like, for me, coffee is something that, that would, like, help me get out of bed, you know. It would help me. It was something I paired with a cigarette when I was going through a really bad heartbreak and a really stressful work time. Like, it was it was... It was something I was in relationship to, and and by assuming that, by talking about relationship and love, you know, my hope was that it would transcend science and become something that felt intimate to people and felt like something they would really want to put a stake in and save. That's so interesting, the point of departure for that uh, response, which was we were doing it wrong, and I I wonder about that. It makes me think of um, something that you wrote early in the book. You um, you wrote that before you did the research on the book, you didn't spend most mornings thinking of where your coffee came from. Um, in fact, you said you didn't spend any mornings thinking about where your coffee came from, and now you're, you're a much more mindful consumer. In, in addition to being an impassioned advocate, you're a mi- more mindful consumer. Um, is it your sense that that is happening for the readers for the readers um, it is my hope i i would say certainly if we look at you know where specialty coffee is uh, the growing movement around craft chocolate of course what we see in craft beer that there is a greater awareness being paid to specificity to place to diversity it's something that I'm really excited about. Um, I, I feel like the way my relationship has transformed is one that takes it all the way back to the place of origin and to producers. And that to me is perhaps an even more exciting part of this, that the narrative now goes uh, beyond the roaster. And I think that's really all I knew. It's like, oh, well, that coffee comes from Cyclass or Stumptown or Intelligentsia or wherever, you know, but that I didn't think about the bigger story. I had this vague notion, you know, from growing up with of a Juan Valdez, you know, and something about where coffee came from. But I had no idea this was an African crop. Like, are you kidding me? You know, like the Ethiopia, what? You know, like, and, and this is something, again, that I've been drinking my whole life. And so, to me, these understandings and this awareness has um, has enhanced the delight of coffee, you know, has made this substance something that's like a passport to the whole world. So when I read about drought in Ethiopia or, or when I hear about the impacts of climate change in Honduras, it's not an abstraction. It's, it's the coffee in the cup, you know, it's the chocolate in the wrapper. Like it's a very real thing for me and it's something that, I, I find has expanded my worldview even more than, than it already, you know, was. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, I, I will join you in your hope that your book is turning people onto coffee and all the other foods you, you engage with in, in different ways. Uh, I'm saying that as someone who's spent almost a decade communicating um, around coffee and trying to share my interest and passion uh, around coffee's origins with people and uh, being frustrated, frankly, and discouraged by the pace at which people turn on to coffee. Um, it's, I see it kind of as a race between the narrowing genetic base of coffee, the pace of climate change, and the degree to which people turn on to the foods. But as you say, um, this is a new approach, one that is... Um, for all the intimacy that you offer, it's meticulously researched and carefully footnoted. And so um, it's deceptively profound, the book, I think, because you, you do such a nice job of making it accessible, uh, but you don't, uh, you don't compromise the, the facts in the process. So um, uh, I will join you in the hope that this book will turn people on to coffee in ways they hadn't been before. Um, before 
I move on, I want to go back to my characterization of the book as a love letter and a dire warning. Um, am I missing something with that reading? Is it also something else that I, I, I failed to uh, pick up on my read during my reading? I, I think it's something that you know, is, and perhaps it's embedded in the love letter, but I hope also it's an act of empowerment in the sense of I've included tasting guides and flavor wheels in for every food. Um, and that was really a way to say, we will do this. When you were citing earlier this, this kind of triple threat, right, climate change, the, the bottleneck of, of genetic diversity, and, um, and perhaps like coupled with a lack of interest, uh, I, I think what I can, the, the entry point now is different, right? When we entered through this idea of conservation, I don't know if people had that same connection. And when I say people, I'll say me, right? I thought of like endangered things as like wildlife, animals, but I never thought of it as foods. And that has been transformative. But but I think um, I also understand the need to appeal to public interest. And, and I, I phrased it as intimacy, but it's really in some ways one and the same. Like we, there's a concept uh, these two behavioral economists at Duke University coined um, known as the finite pool of worry. So essentially, if you know, I want to talk about an issue, I can do one of two things. I can frame it within existing cares, or I can displace something in your finite pool of worry. Because what the finite pool of worry implies is that there's only so much we can worry about at one time, right? So if, if you want me to worry about the loss of agricultural biodiversity, take something out of my pool or frame it in ways that will work within my existing cares. So I'm going to talk about it in your morning cup of coffee. That's how we're going to touch conservation and agrobiodiversity and get ourselves there. But what I also want people to understand is that we play a role in this. For a long time, you know, the way this was framed was, you know, we're going to, we're going to save these genetic resources, these plant genetic resources through, you know, ex situ out-of-place conservation in, you know, a germplasm repository, right? Uh, I visited one, the Jimma Agricultural Research Center um, in Ethiopia, for example, or we're going to save it in situ, you know, which is Latin for in place. We'll save it, uh, we'll save it in, you know, on farms. Um, we'll also save it in the wild, you know, so in, in the places where the diverse wild varieties are grown. Uh, but we weren't really considering consumers' roles for the importance of, of saving these diverse plants because of flavor characteristics or what's often known in scientific parlance as quality. So I wanted to bring this back to us to the person who drinks his or her coffee every morning and say, we can do this too. But what I often find is there are a lot of prescriptive books out there, right, that especially in the food realm, it's like, okay, well, if you want to participate in, in being part of the solution, you need to start fermenting stuff or you need to, you know, grow, a, you know, have a garden or, um, I don't know, start to bake your own bread. And I feel like even within my work, as someone who deeply cares about these things, I didn't want to do all those things. And so I wanted to find a way to say, okay, how do we participate in this? How do we understand these things so we really start to even know, you know, in our body, through our mouth, through our nose, what diversity means? And that's the role of the tasting guides. That's to say, you know, I'm offering the opportunity or I'm suggesting to you, dear reader, that you start to explore the diversity in, let's say, coffee, right? So how do you do it? If you're not in a town that offers public cuppings, where do you go? Well, you're going to have a small guide in my book, and you're going to have an opportunity to find the language to talk about what it is that you discover. And if you're any, anyone like me, you know, as I also describe in the book, it's going to take a while to get there. You know, for a while, coffee was just coffee. I was hypercaffeinated. I couldn't taste anything. And then there was this quiet moment, you know, where I was by myself, and all of a sudden, something else revealed itself to me, and that was a magical moment. And that was the key that turned, that helped me to continue to discover diverse flavors, you know, diverse aromas and tastes in coffee or in chocolate or in beer. And um, and then we can map that onto everything, you know, or to the foods and drinks we love the most. So I think that's just the one other thing that's tucked into that love letter is like a real, a real belief that we can do this together and a real... Um, at least on my part, a commitment to making sure that I provided the steps that would help people to get there. Yeah, well, that came through, I think, um, to a lot of people looking at some of the reviews. Um, one writer for Spoonful magazine uh, 
wrote that we can save the foods we love by eating them. And the author of uh, another review I read in the Seattle Times uh, said that you left her feeling uh, precisely how you wanted to leave her feeling, I think, which is empowered. She said uh, she, you left her hopeful that individual choices will make a difference over time. Are those the messages that you wanted to convey? That's great. I haven't seen that review. Yes, because I think right now in particular, I feel very little agency. When uh, I reuse my reusable bag, when I'm told to write my elected official, um, I don't feel any sense of connection to those things right now. And I, I want to separate those two things because they're very different. So there's these small everyday acts I engage in, right? Turn off the light, walk, pick up that reusable bag. I do all those things and more, but none of those things feel intimate. They're not juicy. They're not dig your hands into the fruit. They're not twirl that, you know, twirl it around on your fork. They're not think about your grandmother and what she used to cook for you. This is what food does. This is what, um, you know, this is what can't happen when I simply turn off the lights. I don't have that kind of relationship with the electrical grid. And then there's this other kind of, you know, trajectory, which is the, you know, get out on the streets or write your elected official. And right now, I feel quite small in all that, you know. And and so this to me feels like an act that is both empowering and nourishing. I can't I can't change. Like I don't feel like I can shift the tide on global markets, you know. In the in the coffee chapter, I talk specifically about commodities. But what I do think I can do is through the act of savoring feel gratitude and feel a connection to another part of the world that isn't available to me when I make a different set of purchases. Um, so when I go and buy the coffee that has no origin, that doesn't come, you know, that wasn't roasted locally or served by an independent, you know, coffee house, I feel a different set of connections to it. And those are ones that are uh, largely commoditized and, and kind of in that core definition of commodity is that they can be interchangeable or fungible, right? That that place no matter no longer matters. That it just um, it comes from a brand. It doesn't it wasn't made by anybody in particular. And I think, you know, that to me it it, it gets translated into how we eat and how we drink. And so to choose this other trajectory and maybe not all the way through, I'm a writer. <laughs> not an investment banker, like I have a very limited budget, but that I've chosen these things that are really meaningful to me, and I've decided that through these foods and drinks, I will um, I will make a set of decisions that really reflect how I want to be in the world, and that reflects relationship and intimacy and connection. And so what I start the day with, which is that cup of coffee, is a commitment I have made to start to find those those connections and to start to move in a direction that supports the kind of agricultural system, the kind of worldview, the kind of economic philosophy that I want to project and I want to manifest. So um, on one level, it's very small, but then when we look at the aggregate statistics and we look at the trajectory around these foods and drinks, um, we see something really is happening. You know, it's over time. It's it's person by person. You know, as I say in the book, it's it's meal by meal and seed by seed, but it's undeniable that it is happening and we are moving in that trajectory um, in, in, in many foods and drinks. So, so, you know, my hope is simply that it will continue. I, I, yeah, I want to ask you about a quote from Dan Barber, who I think also very much liked your book. Um, it, it's a quote I struggle yeah, with. Yeah, he says nice things. Yeah, well, that's always nice. Um, Mm-hmm. He's written a decent book himself. Um, <laughs> Indeed, he, uh, he has. <laughs> he um, he said something that I I struggle with a lot, um, even though it's appealing, and it seems to be a message that you're conveying, which is the search for flavor will save the world. Do you believe that um, on the basis of your your work on this book? I wouldn't save the world seems pretty um, big. I will say it will help us get there. Um, I think, you know, I think what, and I've certainly done the same, um, made big proclamations. Uh, I think that, that with every decision that we make, we're either moving in a direction of saving it or like degrading it. <laughs> So I, I believe the things that we do and the choices that we're making through savoring, through a decision to really 
investigate and um and and deeply understand food choices and and back up you know kind of the understanding that we have with a particular set of choices that we really do set a different kind of trajectory in motion and that trajectory is one that holds uh agriculture and economics and um identity you know and culture and so yeah on that level i really believe that this is how we will save ourselves um it is through but it is through the broader maybe worldview or philosophical approach of connection and of returning to an understanding of of smaller places you know so um localization you know rather than globalization um and of course those things exist simultaneously when you're talking about crops that are shipped from you know from from tropical places or from halfway across the world but how how do we make that thing intimate how do we make that thing local well then it's going to be embracing the local coffee shop it's going to be looking at you know how we can keep some of that money in our local economy it's going to be looking at where those purveyors are sourcing from and what kind of relationships they're building so um so i think those things you know in aggregate are what will turn the tide are what will bring us back toward each other because what we've seen in the last few decades is a real turning away from that um and a real i think disconnection i'm 46 years old and in my lifetime i have seen such radical changes in food and agriculture and how foods are grown and how they're shipped and where they come from and a lack of awareness around seasonality you know there's this um absolute you know understand i mean i i used to teach you know at the university of kansas and i had students who had no sense of when something should be available because it always was you know it might not mm. be grown here locally but you'll be able to find that tomato 12 months out of the year you know and that that to me that loss of specialness and that loss of specificity of take place degrades something in us and that was also kind of one of the messages of the book that this is this is a reflection of who we are you know what we're seeing uh you know in in whatever we choose to eat and drink is is a real reflection of kind of how we move and engage with and in the world. So so it seems like, you know, to come full circle, it seems like, you know, Dan is making a kind of audacious statement, but it's it's one that I actually really do believe in and I think when we start to lose that hope and lose that belief that we can participate in and and help save the world, then um you know, I I don't know what's worth fighting for, you know, more than that. So so I want to hold on to that and I stubbornly believe in that philosophy. Right. The Barber book, I, I want to um talk about that for a minute longer. Um I I loved the book. I just thought it was so he he obviously I think he does make some passing mention of coffee but not as a as a focus of his work, but um you know, the book doesn't really mention coffee and yet I feel like it is shot through with meaning for coffee and it resonates so loudly with me as a coffee professional. Um and one of the things that i found most um interesting and worth exploring is something that you explore explicitly in your in, in the section of the book on coffee and i'm really grateful to you for doing that and that is the the cultural context from which our foods come or this case in this case from which our coffee comes um barber writes about the dehesa in spain and he talks about this uh this agricultural system that is centuries old that has been protected it's revered by the country it produces a delicious food um but the system from which it comes is honored and 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 respected and conserved and when i read about that i thought that's great but the dehesa has nothing on the coffee groves of ethiopia uh, my personal feeling is that the cultural depth and richness of the coffee lands um dwarfs the kinds of things that he was talking about and you get into that so i i want to um invite you to reflect a little bit on both culturally and environmentally uh what we lose if we lose coffee because i think it's a very real possibility that we lose coffee what do we lose culturally and environmentally if we lose that gosh um well first of all we lose the anchor to our day here from a western cultural perspective for me uh what you say rings so true in the sense of you know Africa is an ancient culture that there's so much that is being overlooked uh when the assumption is um that coffee was made by like 
a hipster barista. <laughs> you know, like like the long history that preceded that moment is doesn't exist. You know, much in the way I really emphasize this in the book. Ethiopia is the past, present, and future of coffee. That not only do the plant, the coffee resources, the actual coffee bean come from this area and from South Sudan, you know, originated there, but so did the tradition of making coffee. You know, the place that gets all the credit, again, is Europe. And as an Indian woman, you know, who was born in Germany and grew up in the United States, like, I'm quite used to my, you know, my cultural identity being overlooked. But my goal was to really highlight that and to help remind people that these are the stewards of this this crop that you so revere. That if you do not start thinking about Ethiopian farmers, like you said, there is no future. There is no existence of this coffee. And they are not being rewarded for this. In no way, shape, or form are their efforts being recognized. And I say this in the book, and I believe this so strongly, whatever we are paying for a cup of coffee is not enough. It is not enough. I have met those people, and they are not getting rich off this. And, you know, when I see these farmers showing me equipment, you know, from the 1980s, you know, in Yergachefe, talking about how, like, we have, God has gifted us the best coffee, you know, this gentleman um, said to me, but we don't have the machinery, and we don't have the roads, you know, and it's just like this basic infrastructure that doesn't exist, a lack of water, like, you know, these things that, that I think I take for granted when I simply go and order my cortado, you know, these are the things that I wanted to reveal to people. And this is what I wanted to say. Like, this comes from such a rich place. And the one view that we kind of tend to get, you know, through through our Western media is, is, is like a, a singular view of poverty. And I wanted to say this place is poor. You know, it is impoverished, I should say, but it is not poor. It is not lacking. It is multiple. It is rich and it is, you know, it is, you know, bereft. It is, it is thin and it is wide. It is the days are long. You know, there is, there is arid climates and there is, there are lush ones. Like there's so much richness there that gets overlooked. And, and you know, again, it's like hard to talk about these things in the abstract. Like, oh, hey guys, let's care about Ethiopia, <laughs> you know? as a concept, you know, but what I wanted to say was like, this is the place that created what we have the blessing of drinking right now. This culture, this geography, those people created this and they didn't just grow it. They created the entire tradition of it. Let's talk about the Ethiopian coffee ceremony. Let's talk about the culture of this. Let's talk about how like, you know, I I talk about this roaster, you know, she's Hana, she's 13. She's like, roasting these things over these beans over the fire you know and she is expert in this this is in her blood this is in her soil and i wanted to elevate the people that i met in every one of these foods and make them real to people um so that they would be folded into the narrative that we create here you know that it wasn't one that simply started at the coffee shop or with the roaster but one that had a a more expansive story and you may not get to ever meet you know someone may never go to Ethiopia they may never go to India to put a job and meet you know the the wheat farmers I met there um, but that you know if you have some connection to them now through my journey and my story um, then maybe you'll consider them as part of this broader narrative and maybe you will understand when we talk about something like you said the disappearance of coffee we are talking about the disappearance of culture. We're talking about something that is so much bigger than a single crop. It is about, um, you know, a much broader, wider story of who we are. And that I think we don't want to lose. Or I certainly, I don't want to lose either. But, you know, if, if someone's like, oh, well, coffee's not my thing, you know, it's like, well, first of all, like, we can map it onto tea. But second of all, we're talking about something much bigger than that one thing. We're talking about kind of everything, you know, the essence of who we are. You've spoken here to the cultural importance of coffee, um, and I guess probably reflecting the 15 years I spent as an international development professional, I, I like to think about the cultural um, aspect of coffee um, because I think, you know, good development, I always felt like good international development work had a healthy dose of anthropology, but I'm also drawn significantly to the economic and environmental fallout of anything that might happen uh, to coffee. 
you know, Ethiopia has probably a million people with coffee gardens. Burundi is tiny. It has 800,000. Um, there are millions and millions of households who depend on this. Um, and if that doesn't crack into someone's finite pool of worry, uh, the coffee forests uh, that in which coffee is grown should crack into our finite pool of worry because uh, in many places they're the only forests remaining and they're a significant bulwark against environmental degradation and climate change. So it feels like the stakes are high, um, but again, um, you're probably right to focus on the moving story of the 13-year-old Ethiopian girl um, when I want to focus on agroforestry systems and climate change impacts of coffee forests. You're probably going to connect with people much more effectively than, than folks who focus on some of the more technical outcomes. But um, I think it's important, and you, you do that in the book. I think it's important yeah. to keep those visible to folks too. Absolutely. I mean, you are far more expert than I will ever be in this field, Michael, first of all. So there's there's so much I don't know. But what I do know is that the way we will connect with people is not through data points, you know, and not through these sprawling epic stories. Because if we were going to, that would have already happened by now. You know, and, and all the, the, the sort of sociological and anthropological studies that have been done looking at how movements occur and how cultures change really point to, um, in psychology, I should say, of course, um, point to connection, right? Uh, I talked to, for an earlier iteration of the book, as I mentioned, the one that was on, you know, the environmental barriers or the barriers to environmental engagement, I talked to Anthony Lyserowitz, who heads up um, a climate change initiative at Yale University. He's a psychologist, and he said, someone, data, you know, doesn't change people's decision-making. And here I was, you know, in my journalism, collecting as many data points as I could, right? There were these two trajectories that I held kind of above all others, and they were science and business, right? So you're going you're gonna to flood people with data points, and then you're going to make the economic case for this. That's the only reason I have an MBA, by the way, was to tell stories more compellingly, and this was, you know, when I was in India uh, working at MTV Asia, this was back in the 90s, I saw the number of people who were being displaced when a huge hydroelectric dam was being put in, and I wanted to be able to tell this story, and I wanted to do it through culture, but, you know, what I was told was we needed to back this up, right, with the data, and we needed to talk about the economic case, and so I, I you know, multiple years later, I thought about getting this MBA. I now believe like we need to kind of talk about all three, but I've shifted the order of that. And I truly believe that the intimacy is, is the number one route to take. There was some wonderful research that's been done by Paul Slovic. He's a risk researcher. And, you know, the way our brains function, like we start to desensitize at magnitudes of two. So when I introduce you to Hana, who is that 13-year-old in Addis Ababa roasting those coffee beans, it's going to register in your brain differently than when I start to tell you about the one million people who are growing coffee, you know, or the billions of dollars that are generated by this industry. Like what you want to know about or what, what we kind of, what transforms us, and in terms of transformation, I mean actual documented behavior change is finding about the people who live down the street from us, you know, finding about, about that one person, finding out about, you know, the one coffee shop in our neighborhood. Like it's that those degrees of closeness that help us feel some sense of responsibility or, you know, in kind of economic parlance, you know, through the researchers that do put those issues into our pool of worry. Um, so one of the things that's in our worry pool is, is of course, what we eat, you know, how we move through the day, what's happening in our community. Um, and those are the ways I think that we'll be able to get to your discussions about agroforestry, that they're not exclusive, but, but I think we've been maybe going about it from the macro to the micro. And now what I want to do is move from that smaller place into the bigger one. Right. Well, it's not a Smithsonian Book of the Year for nothing. So <laughs> I want to, <laughs> I want to ask. Book. Not, not Book of the book. Year, Food Book, one of the best, you know, Food Books of 2012, but I'm, I'm super grateful for it. Um, you know, every little bit of, of support helps, you know, and my goal is to simply draw attention to producers more than anything else. I, I want people to know, like, these foods come from somewhere. These drinks come from somewhere. They have, you know, seasonality. They're grown by many different hands and by people who are not making as much as you think they are, you know, and have, have invested their blood, sweat, and tears into this. And I write 
in the coffee chapter how, you know, I had so little consciousness when I was reaching for that coffee. And then, you know, it was only when I was in Ethiopia I really understood how my, how their dreams, the dreams of these farmers were bound up in my own, you know, and how the decisions I were making were going to really put a different kind of trajectory in motion. And, and in telling that story, you know, I really wanted to impress upon people like, Oftentimes it doesn't feel that way. It's like, well, what, you know, what difference does it make? Like, I'm just going to go get the, you know, the KFO meat. You know, I'm not going to worry about that. Or I'm just going to get the quick cup of coffee, the bottomless cup of coffee for 99 cents. And it doesn't really matter, you know, but I, I mean, there's probably some sense of romanticism in this, but I also truly have been to those places now. And I have seen some of the impacts on the ground. And I do know that these decisions will ultimately have an effect because, the slow trajectory that took us in the other direction most certainly did. Hey, I want to ask you to help settle a, settle a bet or settle a debate. Um, you, you probably know that um, the coffee industry in recent years has been fairly obsessed with wine and comparisons between mm-hmm. coffee and wine. And I think, it's a, I think it is a comparison that we from the coffee side have pushed um, from an aspirational perspective, I think we're, we're envious collectively of uh, the way wine has been able to position itself in the marketplace and the prices it's able to command. Um, but then more recently, I feel like the conversation has shifted to a certain extent and people are seeing more parallels uh, between coffee and the beer industry, the craft beer industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's chocolate, which has also uh, some very important parallels to coffee. So, I can't think of anyone better settled, better position to settle the debate than you. So, um, which is it? Is coffee like wine? Is it like beer? Or is it like chocolate? Oh my gosh. I can answer that in so many different ways, Michael. I, I think coffee is something unto itself. You know, coffee is connected, is similar to chocolate in the sense that it's decoupled. The places where it's grown isn't necessarily the place where the end product is made. So there's a case to be made for terroir getting stretched quite quite thin. There's a case to be made within the beer, coffee, you know, trajectory of like the growth of both of these industries being very different than kind of what the evolution of wine has looked like. Um, in terms of, you know, the number of aroma compounds, I, I think it's probably worth somewhere between wine and chocolate. But I think one of the things that I find interesting is um, the ways in which coffee and chocolate are now being paired because the trajectory is actually quite different. I would probably more closely put within a tasting context, uh, coffee closer to wine. Um, you know, the processes, I mean, these are, you know, they're all fermented, but beyond that, they're very different in how they kind of manifest. And, um, and in that regard, coffee maybe has like a slightly straight, you know, more direct path than something like chocolate. Uh, so I, I can't, I'm not going to be able to be the final arbiter. I would say to me, coffee is a leader in the space of its evolution and in the space of defining what it is. It doesn't command the prices. It doesn't have the same kind of understanding as kind of the longer uh, history maybe of, of the winemaking industry, but what it offers is um, a real beacon to craft chocolate, to even craft beer, in trying to develop rigorous standards and tasting protocols um, and uh, quality assessments of you know the the original crop, you know, as as coffee has done, and I think the way you know. And again, I'm not in it like you are, you know, but from, from the outside as someone who has tremendous respect for the specialty coffee industry, I see a lot of integrity and a lot of thought in this process um, and the depths to which I hope, you know, beer and, and chocolate will aspire. Yeah, there is a, a writer called Oliver Strand, who you may know, he writes for the New York Times and used to have a column called Ristretto, and he gave a talk at a coffee event I was at, which still sticks with me five years later, and it's, a, it's an extended comparison between wine and coffee, and he says, wine has the three Vs. It has vintage, vineyard, and variety, and those three Vs mm-hmm. convey everything you need to know about wine. And his challenge was, what are coffee's three Vs? Um, certainly roaster has emerged as an important one. Growing region is an important one. 
he thought maybe there was a third R out there that would help us get uh, our own trifecta on the coffee side. But I wonder, given the breadth and the scope of your reflections on coffee in the book and the conversation we've had here today, what that leaves out. There's so much richness to the coffee story that you can tell in a book that you can't put on the side of a coffee bag. Um, but is there something that you would add to Roaster and Region um, to try to do in a on a small canvas what you've done on quite a large one in the book to really hook people about the all the different ways in which coffee isn't just delicious, but it's important? Yeah. You know, it keeps coming back to producer for me and I understand that can be held within the R designation of region but I still feel like that's one of the greatest opportunities a substance um, you know again it's decoupled right if so we, we look at something like chocolate um, you need a lot you need mass to ferment chocolate to, to, to ferment cacao properly you need a mass of cacao and so um, it's hard to get the kind of specificity a place that you can get with coffee, right? You can get farm specific and the farm can actually be, you know, it can be a micro lot, can be quite small. And and you can't really do that with a substance like cocoa at this point in time. And so for me, I feel like I, I have an, a fair understanding of the, um, of the, the coffee crop once it reaches, you know, this part of the world. Uh, but I think there's still a lot that can be told for, to the general consumer about um, about the origins of it and about where it comes from. And and you're right, there's not a lot we can say on a coffee bag. I mean, it's definitely bigger than a chocolate bar, you know. So there's a little bit more opportunity there. But but that's something that I found very interesting. Like, wow, you know, I see a lot of information maybe about elevation. But I wonder, as a coffee drinker, like, what does that really say to me? You know, I would rather or a washing station or you know, a, a varietal, like, I don't, I don't have the sophistication to understand what that stuff is, but I, you know, I really do believe that, like, telling the story of a farm um, can really have, you know, have a different kind of impact, because it's about fleshing out a narrative, and it's about talking about a culture, um, and it's not a data point, you know, to me, that's what, that's what elevation and washing station information is, Um and it's often without that bigger context. So, so that's the kind of story that I personally would like to see more of. Um, and not, you know, not to the extent of like hyper romanticizing it, um, or using this, you know, photo of the farmer as like, you know, some pastoral whatever, but to really, to really reflect maybe some of the work, you know, the one thing that was really humbling for me, I mean, there were many things, but one of the most humbling was, realizing like what it means to go to origin right and all of a sudden ending up in these places um with very few resources and having great respect for the companies that are making that investment the roasters that are saying like we will go and source you know and what does that mean we will support these smaller lots we will take the risk on these small farms like that's what i want consumers to know right a direct trade, like what is that whole narrative? Like that one to me is really ripe for investigation. And it's one that, that shows the kind of risk that roasters are taking, the kind of investment that roasters are making, but it also again brings us back to those places of origin. And it's not simply like, hey, Colombia has these flavor profiles, you know, but that it's like, what is that land like? You know, what are those people like? That's what I tried to convey more than anything else in the coffee chapter was like, what it felt like, what it smelled like, you know, what it means to be in that place. And and that origin story, I guess, is one that that is vitally important to me and is why I like I said to you in the beginning, like I don't say this I don't say this to all my foods and drinks, but it's why I love my coffee chapter the most. It was the most complicated story to tell. I was trying to talk about the commoditization of coffee and what industrialization does to the loss of agricultural biodiversity. Every every food got paired with this thing, you know. So for chocolate, it was disease. It could have just as easily been coffee, and I talk about that a little bit with, with coffee leaf rust um, in the chapter, but it was really the underlying narrative I wanted people to understand was like, what does it mean when coffee becomes a commodity? And what does it mean when it when it doesn't? What does it mean when it's something specialized again? So, um, 
so those things I think are are really helpful. It helps consumers to understand um, why one decision has a different set of implications. You know, what it means to to actually choose to to pay a little bit more or to I don't know, even go for the local roaster over over a bigger one that you know over a chain and or over a, a bigger chain versus a smaller chain. Like there's so many degrees of this, but but I think there's a lot in those stories that can still be told. Um, and I'll leave it up to you guys to figure out how you get it on the back of a coffee package. But but that's some of what I'd like to see, or maybe on a website, you know. <laughs> well, thanks for that, and uh, thank you for the book. Um, it's such a welcome. Uh, addition to the literature on coffee. Thank you for taking a little time uh, today to talk with us for our podcast. Um, before we close, do you want to talk a little bit about your podcast? Uh, yes, it's it's becoming in real time. I'm launching, uh, so I spent five years on six continents researching all of these foods. and um, And the transformation in chocolate really caught hold of me. I mean, I love my coffee people. You guys are the nicest people, guys and gals. <laughs> You've been so good to me, and I still start every day with you, but there's something about chocolate that really took hold of my imagination, and I am launching uh, on January 27th, The Slow Melt, which is the first podcast that looks comprehensively at chocolate um, and kind of all the relationships embedded within it. And I call it the slow melt because it is really about connection. Um, chocolate, uh, the cocoa bean is about 50% fat. That fat is stable at room temperature and it starts to melt when it makes contact with us. So for me, the slow melt is about relationship and about those connections. And it's one, it's one that starts with our relationship with our environment and with the producers. And it goes all the way through that value chain. Um, and that's what I'll be sharing starting at the end of January. Well, it sounds delicious. I'm anxious to listen to it. Thank you. Thank you. That's our show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Andy Atkinson for producing it. And I want to thank Simran for being our guest. At the beginning of the show, Simran said that coffee was her favorite of all the foods that she studied. Uh, but she's starting her own podcast now, and it's about chocolate. Uh, she got captivated by chocolate in a way that was special, and she's devoting a lot of her time and energy to a new project called The Slow Melt. Um, you can check out the podcast beginning on January 27th. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes. In the meantime, you can go to our blog at intelligentsiacoffee.com and download an excerpt from the coffee section of Simran's book. Thanks for listening.